Where are we in the creed? We're now adding another phrase, okay? I believe in God, and our new phrase for this week is the Father Almighty. The Father Almighty. So let's say our three phrases if we can remember them together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. This is fascinating language. Father and Almighty. What does it mean for God to be Almighty, all-powerful? What does it mean for God to be a father? Let's dwell on this, this gendered language of the father for just a second. In 1973, in a, in, in a famous book that she wrote, the feminist philosopher Mary Daly made this famous quote. She said, and I'm paraphrasing it a little bit, but it's basically like this. She said, if God is a man, if God is a male, then men are gods. Men are made into gods. She was very much against this idea, by the way. <laughs> that God would be a male because of that exact implication. If you impute manhood, men, maleness into God, you have therefore deified men on earth at the expense of women. It's a fascinating quote, right? Is this true? Does God's gender or our perception of God's sex and or gender, those terms sex and gender, by the way, are differentiated by people in various ways. Sometimes people talk about sex as being something that's biological, whereas gender is like culture and what we learn but I guess that gets really complicated. Does God's gender have the power to change reality or to empower men or women at the expense of one another? Does God even have a body, by the way? To be more specific, should we get more specific? Yes, let's do it. Does God have the um, exact body parts or physiology to make him, air quotes, him, a man or a woman? Like, how do we understand sexual difference? Like, I'm pretty sure, I'm not a scientist. This is like, I have to look this stuff up on the internet. Like, I'm so bad. Like, we have chromosomes, right? And at the 23rd chromosome, women have an XX and men have an XY. Is that right? I see, some, I see the biology majors shaking their head. That's good, okay. And from that one chromosome, just that one little XXXXY thing, comes the difference that leads females to develop ovaries and men to develop testes. And then there are other physical implications that follow from that. That's how we think about sex in terms of biology. So if we're talking about God's sex or God's gender, like, does God have chromosomes? Does he, you know, again, or it, or God, she have the X, Y chromosome? How would you even know? What kind of research would you have to do to actually get purchased on a question like that? But regardless, why does the Bible speak of God, and this is true, the Bible does speak of God, using predominantly male grammar, using pronouns like he, and what about Jesus, by the way? We're going to get to Jesus in this, in this course eventually, okay? He's the center of the Christian faith and comes up in the New Testament part of the Bible, but Christians see Jesus, in fact, all over the place in the Old Testament as well. And we've mentioned a couple of little places so far. Jesus was, by all accounts, a male, a man, at least in the biblical account. What does that mean? Does that have any implications? For Christians, Jesus is God. So in a sense, Jesus as God is a male, but is God like the, 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 some other sense of God, male and female, or something other than male or female? Why use this term father? Does gender matter? All of this, I think, is brought up by, by the phrase in the creed, the Father Almighty. I want to return to this question about gender, at least at the end here, and we might punt a lot of this to Friday for our action-packed panel on this question of God's gender and whether it matters and why. First, though, I want us to dive into the laws in the Torah. This phrase, Torah, spelled like this, T-O-R-A-H, with a capital T, 
is the basic Hebrew term for the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We've read Genesis. You've read half of Exodus. I'm going to ask you to read a little bit more in Exodus and then also some uh, parts of Leviticus. And we're just going to have to kind of summarize Numbers and Deuteronomy in some ways to kind of get us through the week and get us on with our story, okay? But that word Torah is kind of a code word for that first section of five books. Sometimes it's also called the Pentateuch, P-E-N-T-A-T-E-U-C-H, which is just another word that means like the five, the five books or something like that. Um, Torah with a, a lowercase t, if we want to put it like that, just means law, rule, custom, something like that. So when we talk about Torah, we, we can either be talking about the capital T Torah, like the first five books, which, which became very important in Judaism, and during Jesus' life was kind of like the core Bible for a lot of Jews during Jesus' time. Or we could be talking about Torah, lowercase t, just meaning any of the laws that we find within the Torah. Okay? Now, plot. What happens here? If you have a Bible, you can turn to Exodus 19. We can get back into our story. We got these Hebrew slaves out of Egypt. That was good. They got to get out of slavery. Someone was asking on Friday over text about like the social implications of the Exodus story for just justice and issues. Yeah, they're huge. God enacts freedom from slavery for people. It's a big deal. Although we suggested in the textbook reading that this is a little bit problematic because this language of slavery is actually used throughout the Bible to describe God's relationship to God's people. So the sense maybe on strictly biblical terms is not that the Israelites are just like, we were enslaved by Egypt, we can't do whatever we want. And then God releases them into total freedom, freedom meaning freedom from having to do any particular thing, believe or act in any particular way. Oh no, it's not like that. God says, you're to be my slaves. You are to serve, that word in Hebrew, serve, means serve as a slave, avad. You're to serve me, God says. You were, you were in the wrong place with the wrong God, Pharaoh, and now it's time for something new, something different. Okay. So God leads them out, and in Exodus 19, they get through this, you know, th these waters, the sea, which piles up on either side. The Egyptians die, it's the final victory, and now they're gonna approach a mountain, does anybody love mountains, mountain climbing? Beautiful mountains around here. Why does God take Israel to a mountain? God has a mountain. This is something to know now, and you're gonna, you're gonna get in touch with this as you read for this week. God has a special mountain. It's called Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, okay? And God is gonna take his people there to this mountain in a terrifying event, take him to the mountain, Take them to the mountain. Take Moses to the mountain, leading the people still. Moses is still our leader. And they're going to stand there at the foot of the mountain while God has like a spectacular volcano thunderstorm thing going on. And God's going to scream down, like literally I say scream because it's, the text says it's, it's an auditory experience. It's loud. It's so loud the Israelites cover their ears and are like crying on the ground basically as God thunders down his laws to them. The first set of laws he thunders down are in Exodus 20. This is where your reading will almost commence for this week. These are the famous Ten Commandments. You may have heard of the Ten Commandments. Shall not lie, shall not steal, honor the Lord your God, you know, honor your father and mother, shall worship only the Lord your God. We'll read a little bit about that this week. However, that's not it. 
he thunders down the Ten Commandments, and the Israelites are like, ah, we can't handle this. Moses, you talk to God. We cannot talk to God directly. And Moses says, that's right, you can't. He's too amazing. He's too powerful. Exodus 20, 21, the people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. This is an amazing scene. As you read, just notice, notice the colors, notice the sound, notice the imagery. This is an image of God. It's not an image that Christians dwell on a lot, but it's a fascinating one. There were some Christian theologians who lived, particularly in the early medieval period, but I think this is still a spiritual movement among some people today, who dwelled on images like darkness for God. Um, you might even call something like this negative theology in a broad sense. Negative theology or apophatic traditions wherein we would say that, you know, all this stuff that we say about God as Christians, it's all not true. In fact, anything that anyone says about God, according to this tradition of negative theology and apophatic theology, is not true. Why isn't it true? It's not true because God is so immeasurably above and beyond us in this way of thinking that there's nothing that you can actually say that is even accurate. It'd be like asking a one-year-old to talk about the, United, the world economy. There's nothing that they can say that would be accurate, right? They could be like, well, the economy? You know, they could like repeat the words, and you're like, yeah, tell me about the world economy. And they're like, ah, you know, <laughs> like it's at that level, right? That's how far away we are from God in this way of thinking. So this image of the, of, the, of the thick darkness where they approach God, and they can't even really see God, and they can't even really hear God directly, is suggestive of this way of thinking, gives us a sense of that otherness of God. I think many of us who grew up in church grew up very much with images of God, kind of like a teddy bear, you know, like God is my bro, God's my bud, Jesus is my friend, you know, that kind of imagery. A lot of American church culture has gone very far into that. I think by way of trying to tell people, hey, God loves you, you know, in interact with God, you know, do that. There are images like that. I mean, Jesus calls his followers in the New Testament friends. Why would God call people his friends? That's crazy, right? Yeah, friends, that's really intimate. So there's that. But there's also this other kind of image of God, right? And not just in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament too, where God is other, God is holy, God is different, God is in deep darkness and cannot just be approached. God even says to the people in Exodus 19, if you even touch my mountain, I will kill you. Don't touch my mountain, I'll kill you. I mean, that's pretty amazing. That's stunning stuff that God had a system like that for people. Don't touch my mountain, okay? Now, after the Ten Commandments though, God's gonna thunder down more commandments, namely about 603 additional commandments, okay? Over 600, not a few. That's what the whole book of Exodus after this point is about. That's what the entire book of Leviticus is about. It's still God speaking from the mountain. And then half of the book of Numbers is also just God still speaking from the mountain. Then in about the middle of the book of Numbers around chapters 12 or 13, the Israelites start to wander around in the wilderness and, you know, they complain. They're very mad. Now they're upset. They got out of Egypt. Yay! But then it was like, boo! You know, they're very fickle, right? People are, people are like this with leadership. When it's going great, gas prices are low. Yay, leader. Like one thing goes wrong and it's like, ha, this whole thing was a joke. I knew it. You know? And that's how Israel treats God. And God gets very mad. And God, in fact, kills them in the desert. It's a brutal story. Okay? Then Deuteronomy is just Moses giving like a 40-chapter speech recounting many of the laws that they had already been given and telling them about their journey and basically saying to Israel, Israel, you better obey God or else. 
Because we're about to go into the land. Yes, remember the covenant from Genesis. That was the predication of this whole thing, the covenant. God was going to give them land and kids. They have kids. They, don't, they still don't have land. And by the end of the Torah, they're still not going to have land. The land still isn't their own. We're going to have to wait to get that land. Here's the problem. You can't just have the land. You have to be fit to live in the land, okay? You have to be ready to live in it. You have to have a way to live in the land. Because of that, God will give them the law. That's what the law is for. Um, law in the Bible's ancient Near Eastern context was typically not viewed as a human invention. We see law that way today. We could change laws. Maybe some of you are going to be politicians and lawyers and you can go to court, go to the Supreme Court, argue and change a law. Maybe you see some divine mandate for that. Maybe it's just, you know, you're just working just as a good person to do justice. In the ancient world, though, they didn't think of law that way. They thought of law as divine. Gods gave laws. Let me give you an example of this. I brought along a prop. Law collections from Mesopotamia and Asia Minor, second edition, edited and translated by Martha Roth. Okay. Have you ever heard of the laws of Hammurabi, Hammurabi's code? One of the earliest law codes that we have preserved in a big stone stela. The prologue to Hammurabi's code is a great example of how an ancient ruler saw law as his own achievement in a way. He was the one who heard from God, but it was definitely divine. It was thundered down from on high. So Hammurabi's code starts with a prologue. When the august god Anu, king of the Anunnaku deities, and the god Enlil, lord of heaven and earth, determines the destinies of the land, allotted supreme power over all peoples to the god Marduk. Do you hear all this divine language? These are all gods. And it goes on and on and on and on. And then finally, he does this huge wind-up talking about all these gods and goddesses who gave him all this stuff. Finally, when the god Marduk commanded me, that's Hammurabi speaking in the first person, when the god Marduk commanded me to provide just ways for the people of the land in order to attain appropriate behavior, I established truth and justice as the declaration of the land. I enhanced the well-being of the people. At that time, and then boom, there begins the actual laws. So the setup is very much, it's similar in that way. I'm comparing these two accounts. Very much like the gods give the laws. Laws are divine. They're not just human inventions. So the Bible doesn't want to present laws and morality as like, eh, you know, people have customs together, things that they do, things that they like to do, things that they don't like to do, and different people will kind of work it out. No, it's, it's divine. It's from on high. Okay. Now, just doing a walking tour here, if you have a Bible, if you want to flip with me to Deuteronomy, let's, let's flip to the end of the Torah. Leviticus, Numbers, you're flying by, you see the words, they're there. What's the point of this law once they get to the land? I mean, here's just a summary of what the point is, according to God. Deuteronomy 4. Now Israel, God says to them, hear the decrees and laws I'm about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live and go in and take possession of the land. I'm skipping a few words here, okay? Do not add to what I command you. Don't subtract from it. Verse 5. See, I've taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me. This is Moses speaking. He's speaking on God's behalf. So that you may follow them, these laws in the land you are entering, take possession of it. Observe them carefully. Why? For this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees, all these laws that God does from Sinai. And they will say, these nations, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them, near to them the way the Lord our God is near to us whenever we pray to him? 
And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I'm setting before you today? So the wisdom of the laws is kind of like the basis on which Israel will occupy the land and other people will look at them and be like, these people are so great, look at their laws. So that's the pressure put on the law in the Bible. It's a very heavy pressure, you could say. How can we even begin to talk about these laws? There's, like I said, there are like almost 615 of them and they're all over the place. At least as you read, I think you're gonna notice this. You're gonna be like, okay, 10 commandments, got it. I already knew some of these. And then you're, gonna, then you're gonna flip a page, you know, flip a chapter after you get through the Ten Commandments and it's gonna be like, okay, honor your father and mother, do this, I got it, good. If you buy a Hebrew servant or slave, he's to serve you for, wait a minute, he, the Hebrews have slaves? They're not supposed to have slaves. I thought that was the whole point of the Exodus story was to get out of slavery. And then you're gonna be like, uh, anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. What? That's really, that's extreme, right? Has anyone, here, has anyone here ever cursed their father or mother? Death. Anyone who beats their male or female slave with a rod must be punished if the slave dies. But if they're not punished, if the slave recovers, no big deal since the slave is their property. What the heck? Now we're back to the slave thing again. I thought that this was, okay. If a bull gores a man or woman to death, the bull is to be stoned to death. Now there's all kinds of laws about stoning bulls and goring bulls. Like how often did this happen? Were people just being gored by bulls all over the place? I don't mean to trigger anybody who's been gored by a bull. I mean, that's a possibility that that's happened to you, but is this a common thing? I don't, you know. So the laws are gonna seem, as you read, I'm trying to prepare you for the reading. I'm trying to fortify your soul here. It's gonna be kind of like all over the place, and you're gonna be like, wait, what is happening? Let me try to give you a way to organize these laws, at least on an extremely basic way. Um, and this basic organization is suggested already by the Ten Commandments. Namely, the idea that the laws work vertically between God and humans. So there are some laws that are just, just about how humans are to respect and revere God. And then there are some laws that are horizontal, namely human to human. That says human, okay. Um, how people are to treat each other in a just society. That's one way you could think of it. Now, in the Ten Commandments, for example, the first five-ish laws are all about that vertical. You shall not worship other gods. You shall respect the Sabbath. You know, all this kind of stuff that seems very much like worship toward God oriented. But then the Ten Commandments makes a turn and then it's about honor your father and mother, no committing adultery, no stealing, no coveting, this kind of stuff, which, you know, does it involve God? Yes, but it's more like about how people treat each other. You could think of law that way, you could, but there's a problem. And here's the problem. There are many parts of this law code that blur this distinction between the vertical and the, and the horizontal, between human and divine, and make it seem as though, really, all of this law is about fully how humans interact with God, even when it just seems to be about us and each other. Let me give you two examples. So Exodus 22, verse 16. One example. What do you see in Exodus 22:16? It's kind of a wild ride. Just notice the juxtapositions here in the way this law code is put together. I'll read Exodus 22:16. If a man, okay, this is crazy. If a man seduces a virgin, is this exciting or what? If a man seduces a virgin who is not pledged to be married and sleeps with her, he must pay the bride price and she shall be his wife. If her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he must still pay the bride price for virgins. 
Do not allow a sorceress to live. Anyone who has sexual relations with an animal is to be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord must be destroyed. Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused and I will kill you with a sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. Do not blaspheme God or curse the ruler of your people. I'm skipping a verse there. Do not hold back offerings from your granaries or your vats. You must give me the firstborn of your sons. Do the same with your cattle and your sheep. Let them stay with their mothers for seven days, but give them to me on the eighth day. You are to be my holy people. So do not eat the meat of any animal torn by wild beasts. Throw it to the dogs. Do you notice the wild kind of like movement there? One minute it's like, kill a sorcerer. And the next moment it's like, worship only the Lord your God. And the next minute it's like, if you have sex with a woman and you're not married, boom, she's your wife. And the next minute it's like, you better watch how you're treating the fatherless and the widow and vulnerable people in your society, you know? It's hard to get your footing there if you're just expecting like, okay, these laws should just be about how humans treat God. Or, oh, these laws should just be about kind of basic social justice kind of stuff. They're mixed. It's all of these things together and you're gonna find that over and over again. Let me give you another example if you're not convinced that these two categories are tough to distinguish. How about we go into Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus is the book after Exodus. Leviticus 19 has a lot of this kind of stuff. I'm just going to skip around here just to show you the kinds of, of statements you see. The Lord said to Moses, speak to Israel and say, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Each of you must respect your mother and father. You must observe my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. When you reap the harvest of your land, verse 9, do not reap to the very edges of your field or g gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God. I am the Lord. Notice that repeated refrain, I am the Lord. I am God. It's almost as though God wants to put his own identity as God on the line with the way that Israel treats the deaf and the blind, which is a pretty amazing thing. I haven't done enough study to really back up a statement like this, but I will suggest it because I think it's, it's true. M many, law codes, many law codes obsess about justice among people. The Bible, though, has so, so much minutia about this. You could even see, by the way, in the Bible here, in a statement like... Um, you know, do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind. You could see a program here for working in disability services for Christians. Like Christians have a divine mandate in the Torah to do disability services the correct way. You know, we try to do this at George Fox and in educational settings. We fall short all the time. We fail people with disabilities. There's a law here about that, right? And God is staking his own identity as God on the proclamation of that law. That seems to be a big deal. So this horizontal vertical thing, I don't know how well it works. You can look for it. Do you think it works? Does it break down? Okay. In Leviticus now, once you get there, really into the heart of it, you're going to read about a system of sacrifice and blood rituals that God wants Israel to carry out. And they're going to do all of these blood rituals in a place called, in Hebrew, the Mishkan. The Mishkan. 
feels about that time in the class when people need to say a Hebrew word. So I'll say it, then you say it. Mishkan. Okay. Mishkan means tabernacle or dwelling place. Literally means a place where someone dwells. It's a kind of a tent. Israel is going to live in tents out in the wilderness while they wander around before they get in the land. And even God is going to go camping with them. Because God needs to move with them. And here we're going to find already an image that's going to become really important later in the Bible. Echoes. Remember we've talked about this idea of echoes, things that come up, come up again. This idea that God would travel with the people, be in their midst, is a big deal in the Bible. It comes up later in the Bible, in fact, in one of the most lofty and elevated and amazing theological ideas that Christians have. It's a stunning idea. Totally stunning. It's so stunning, I'm even going to go write it on this other marker board. Okay. It's the idea of, the, of incarnation. Incarnation. That the Latin root at, at, the, at the heart of that word, carne, means flesh, body, meat, you know, meat. God in the Christian tradition, this is a huge plot spoiler in a stunning moment, get ready, becomes a human being which is weird, I think, in the history of religious thought, just because if you're a god, I mean, what is it to be, actually be a god? That's what we were talking about last week, right? Like, what's a god supposed to be? I'll tell you one thing about what a god is supposed to be. In most religious traditions in the ancient world, at least, gods are not people. Gods are not flesh and blood. Gods don't have the kind of failing bodies and losing their voice and all this kind of stuff that people have. Gods are different. Gods don't die. Gods don't cry or bleed. I mean, yeah, there are some gods who are kind of like failures in various literatures, but they can recover, you know, they recover from that. They don't die. In Christian tradition, Christians have a God that actually became a person. Christians actually have a God that died. We're going to get to that. Already, though, in this notion of the Mishkan, the tabernacle, the dwelling, we have a sense that God is not just aloof, God is not just nowhere. God is actually boots on the ground with the people. He's dwelling in a tent with them, coming down. That sense of God coming down and being with people is a really important biblical concept, and you see it already here. Is it like, is Jesus the Mishkan? Well, you could get mystical and say it's like an image of Jesus in a way. Not quite, you know, and the text doesn't mention Jesus. The name Jesus won't come up until very, very late, relatively speaking, in the Bible. But it's a kind of image, an image of the way that this God wants to relate in the midst of the people, okay? Now, Leviticus is going to have a system. You're going to read a little bit about this. I don't know how helpful it is to, like, memorize all these things or get too detailed, but I want you to read it. It's tough reading. Warning, it's tough. There's going to be a system of sacrifices, of blood animal sacrifices that people are going to make in this Mishkan that God wants them to make. What are the sacrifices for? All kinds of things. Sins that you commit, not just you, but also your community. And not just sins that you commit intentionally, but even sins that, you, that are unintentional, things you do on accident. There's a way of dealing with sin. And I want you to notice, even through all the boredom of Leviticus, I don't want to prep you for it like it's boring, but I mean, many people are like, oh, geez, animals and blood. Maybe if you're into like heavy metal music, you'll like Leviticus, like blood, you know, I don't know. You're going to see that kind of stuff. But I want you to notice how seriously the book treats sin, Human wrongdoing, humans going astray. It's everywhere. It's obsessed with it. Why animal sacrifice? This is another thing that almost everyone in the ancient world did, animal sacrifices. Why? Is there a sense that somebody has to pay for sin? Again, another echo that we're going to see in the Bible. 
I mean, where does your sin go? You know that if you rob a bank, you go rob First Federal down in Newburgh, and you are caught, you will pay for that. That's what our justice system is about, making people pay for offenses. But I mean, there's so many things that go wrong in our lives, so many things that I do wrong. It's like, who actually pays for that? You know, I say a sharp, unkind word to my wife. Who, who pays for that? Maybe my wife just forgives me. This is what you gotta do in marriage. There's all kinds of conflicts. You just have to kind of like pretend like it never happened and just keep going, okay? Otherwise, it's like, but there's a sense like these things build up, right? Like somebody's gotta pay for this. So the idea of that sin is something serious that has to be paid for is a, is a, is a key biblical concept. And you're gonna see it already in Leviticus. Israel is going to sin and God has a way to deal with it. It's this Mishkan thing and it's the sacrifices that happen in the Mishkan. There's also a sense, if you're coming to a, a tabernacle and I'm a priest, there's a system of priests that you're gonna read about and like you're bringing a goat there and we're like, put your hands on the head of the goat and I will recite these words and that's your sin going on to the head of the goat and then we kick the butt of the goat out into the wilderness. It's as though your sin has gone away. It's very visceral, you know? It's at, le at the very least, it's a nice object lesson. Or if you kill animals and spill their blood, it's gonna be tons of blood, just blood flying around. There's a kind of like a sense of smell there. There's a visual. There's maybe a sense of touch if you get blood on you, right? That something important is happening. It's kind of like in your youth group when you like write down your fears and throw them in a fire, you know, or something like, it's like a ritual where you're kind of like, you're physically doing something bodily to deal with something. And this is what this sacrificial system is going to be. Now, briefly, a common reaction, especially among Christian readers to reading all this is like, okay, so what am I supposed to do with this now? Um, one thing I've learned about you all in this age bracket that most of you are in, this 18 to 22 thing, is that you all have become, I don't know how you became this way, there's there, kind of like social theory about this, you all have become like, uber practical, like you guys are so practical. You're like, maybe it's school, the school system that you came from with like assessment, like here are the skills, get the skills, say the skills on the test, what are the skills? Like that's really, that sounds really practical to me, like the way that you all just wanna like da 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 da, da you know, the way that you wanna do this, this thing. And so I don't blame you if as a Christian reader you're like, okay laws, do I need to do this law? Flow chart, if yes, how do I do it? If no, thanks, bye, why are we even reading this, right? You all are that practical, I know you are. But I want you to read this anyway and I want you to get into this, okay? And I want you to feel the burn of the fact that some of these laws, many of these laws are laws, and, and then this is something I want you to talk about in your groups this week actually, I've got this on, on, on the list of things to talk about. Some of these laws are things that you would definitely wanna follow, I think, in your life. Some of these things though are things that you would not want to follow, I bet, I'm just guessing. Now the question becomes, do you just like follow the things that seem like good ideas to you? And then the things that seem weird or bad, bride prices for virgins and stuff, you're like, yeah, no, not that. I mean, that sounds already, that's a bad system, right? It's just like, is that just up to you, your whims as a person of faith? How do you do this? Now, Christians have had a basic rule about this stuff. I'll float this to you. It's not the only rule. It's a basic rule, which is to say, Christians have typically followed laws and rules that are repeated or endorsed in some way in the New Testament, number one. Number two, Christians have followed or obeyed laws and rules that seem universal. Like the New Testament doesn't need to repeat the law, thou shalt not kill, for you to think that probably applies to me today morally, okay? We also have a sense though that laws, and this is a deeply Christian concept too, 
when we think about ethics, is ethics just about like, here are like five things you shouldn't do and two things you should do, and those are your guidelines for life, and there's nothing outside of that. It's just that. No, I mean, ethics is, is often very, a lot of shades of gray. Ethics is difficult. It's not just about do this or don't do that. It's about decision-making and wisdom. And this is a Christian theme, too, that will come up with regard to the law and with regard to how Christians, do, you know, kind of sort out their moral lives. At any rate, the, a kind of a vague view, like, well, doesn't Jesus come and, like, the law is kind of, like, over, is too simplistic. That doesn't really work. Part of the reason it doesn't work is because, say, Jesus himself says, quote, Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law. I have not come to abolish them, the laws, but to fulfill them. What does it mean to fulfill a law as opposed to abolish? Jesus explicitly says he does not abolish the law. Okay. So it's complicated and we'll have to revisit this issue. Okay. For now, you're not crazy if when you read the laws this week, you're going to see some of them as a Christian and say, hey, we don't follow that and I am so, so glad, okay? You're not crazy. But still, still, as you read, I want you to ask and be creative. What is this law for? What moral purpose is served here? What social purpose is served? Who's being protected? Who's being denied? Who suffers? Who benefits? All that kind of stuff. One more thing for today on the gender question. I want to give you a few bullet points of thinking about this gender issue. Is God a father? What does it mean for God to be a father? God's almighty. He's going to give us these laws that shows us he's almighty. But is he a he? Number one, and this will prime us up for our discussion on Friday in a way. I've already suggested that in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, when there's an image of God, do you remember that passage? Male and female, God creates them. That this is something we have to pay attention to. What's the conclusion here though? If God creates males and females in God's image, is it possible that God has no female image? Only a male image. Is, does God only have a female image? No male image. How could God create males in his image if he, if he doesn't have a male image? How could he create women in his image if he doesn't have a, fe- you know, a female image? So that's, that, that's a starting place very early in the Bible for thinking about God's gender. I've heard people say, by the way, things like, oh, in that culture way back then, God had to be seen as male and Jesus had to be a male because there were all kinds of goddesses and pagan fertility cults and it would have been inappropriate to see a god as a female. I want to just say, if you'll just take my expert authoritative professor word on it, that's fake. Like, no, that's a big no. Um, There were gods, there were goddesses. I mean, presumably God can do whatever God wants in terms of God's gender or the kind of sexual meaning of God, in terms of the biology of God. What does it mean? I wouldn't go in that direction. I wouldn't try to explain it away that way. What does it mean that God is a father? Um, I want to emphasize one more thing. Namely that early Christian thinkers, and I, I had a bunch of quotes here that I could have read. We've sort of run out of time, but I want to emphasize this one thing. Early Christian thinkers, many of them, and big name early Christian thinkers, were adamant and very specific in saying that the image of God as a father is not a biological gender sex image. God is not a biological male. Or to put it maybe more provocatively for the young mind, God does not have a penis, okay? Like they were really, they were really big on that. God does not have a vagina. God is not like bodily situated like a person, they wanted to say. They wanted us to get away from the biological thinking, the bodily thinking, and really get into thinking about the issue of relationship. What is the parental-child relationship 
about. Having said that, though, I think there's, 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 a, there's a problem in that system, though. Again, namely the fact that Jesus, God incarnate, back to our word incarnation, was, in fact, a male. Presumably, Jesus did have male genitalia and was culturally and sexually and in all other ways a male, just like a male of the Jewish first century would be. How does that fact complicate the idea of God's gender? What does it suggest about it? Or is there a way, when thinking about the broader Christian concept of the Trinity, that we could maybe think about gender in a different way? That maybe there's some sharing of male and female traits there, and things that just transcend anything that we call gender or sex today. We'll have to get back that, to that on Friday.